Thanks, Jerry. It's quite a reading that is, isn't it? God bless you. Yeah. Thank you. We've got a clock there today. <laughs> so once that gets to zero, it's going to shoot me, so I better get going. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your glory in the church, in communion, in new life. We thank you for Imogen, for Elizabeth. We give you glory. We pray that we may experience a renewing now as we hear your word preached in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're good to record, Pete. Thank you. This is a true story of a newspaper headline uh, picked up online. A man hired a prostitute to come to his hotel room and when he answered the door, it was his daughter. A man hired a prostitute to come to his hotel room and when he opened the door, it was his daughter. Titus Cube, married father of three. This is, an, this is the article. Collapsed to the floor with shock while his daughter, just 20, fled the hotel in tears. Mr. Kubi from Balawawo in Zimbabwe said he was having a marital problems and decided to rent a room at the local hotel and call for a prostitute. It's terribly sad. And please don't hear me judging there but for the grace of God. Go each one of us. But it reminds us of a text in scripture, Numbers 32, an often quoted text, Numbers 32, 23. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you can be sure that your sin will find you out. You can be sure your sin will will find you out. The context, does anyone, anyone, anyone know the context of the verse? A text without a context is a pretext to a proof text. In other words, no text out of context would ever be used to, to teach anything. What's the context? It is, it is a situation. The Israelites are about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Reuben and Gad decided they want their piece of plot on the east side of the Jordan. And so, but they promised the Israelites, we'll help you fight and then come back to our plot. And Moses reminds them. And just remember what you said? If you don't keep to your word, you can be sure your sin will find you out um, and be judged accordingly. And so Daniel chapter 5 really is a reverberation of that. It demonstrates that this is a biblical principle working through the Bible. In chapter 6 of Daniel now, chapter 5 rather, this is our sixth talk, we encounter a scenario that, that, that sheds flesh on that text and its ongoing ramifications. So chapter 5 we often forget, it's, well, it's often not easy to see in Scripture that we can be jumping decades between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is at least 20 years, at least. In fact, by now, Nebuchadnezzar's been dead for 20 years. 
Now, he came to reign in 605 BC. Daniel was brought into the kingdom roughly at the beginning of that. So it's been over 60 years since they had that episode in chapter 1 where they were eating vegetables. Daniel, if he came as a young teenager, he's now in his 80s. So Daniel, now an old man, King Nebuchadnezzar, dead. In his place is reigning this fellow called Belshazzar. He's not actually the king. His father is. But his father is absent, been absent for 10 years. And in some sense now, his son has acquired power uh, as a co-regent on behalf of his dad. It's the final night of Babylonian rule. This is the evening that will see the end of this great empire. And it's into that situation that chapter 5 launches into. Our theme is hope and grace in trial. And our heading this morning, and it's a sobering one, there's a a sobering note to this morning's message. I hope we're not adverse adverse to the whole scale of God's teaching. There's always balance. And in this area at least, we see a real sober note for us. Here's the heading. It will come up on the screen. We can be sure our sins will find us out. We can be sure our sins will find us out. First one begins, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. It's the final night of Babylonian rule. Belshazzar's father's already been killed some 50 miles outside of the city, he's been apprehended. Belshazzar is fully aware that the Persians are coming to the city. He can probably hear the sound and rumbling of the army. And instead of preparing for war, what does he do? Has a party. Seriously. An orgy of wine. Drunkenness. It's almost as though, I think it's an attempt to show some form of bravado. Hey, come on, mate. Who cares about the Persians? We'll show the Persians when they get here in the morning. But let's drink, eat, and be merry whilst the opportunity is there. So here's a man who is drinking, trying to drown his sorrows. Avoid reality. Let me tell you, friends, the worst thing we can do in life is to pretend something isn't real. And whatever else Christianity is, it is not a crutch for people who do not want to face reality. Here's a man who's trying to avoid reality with drink. And listen to this verse 2. There'll be grave consequences ahead before the night is over. Belshazzar, verse 2, was drinking his wine. When he was drinking his wine, he gave orders uh, to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, his father here is more ancestral. It's, It's probably a reference to his grandfather. So his grandfather had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, verse 3, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. If you could cast your minds back for five weeks, in chapter 1 we see the context for this. Chapter 1, verse 2, that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for acquiring these sacred, holy 
articles. And the thing about the sacred and the holy, it cannot be made the mundane. It's something about the church. Are you aware? If we are God's holy people, that holiness includes being set apart for God. We are not permitted for use in non-holy areas. That's why we don't. That's why we avoid sin. Because we've been set apart by God for holy purposes. And to bring that into the common is to profane God's name. And that's exactly what he's doing. So Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, understood, perhaps through superstition, that these were holy articles dedicated to a God. And as far as history tells, he left the articles in the temple. But his son, grandson rather, in his drunken stupor, decides that he's much braver than his father calls for them to be brought out for his amusement. These holy articles now used to buttress his bravado. Look, I don't care about God. I don't care about the Persians. I don't care, full stop. I think that's what's going on. This, this attempt to show bravado in the face of absolute danger from the Syrians, from the, uh, from the uh, Persians rather, and then mocking God. Listen to this. Their mocking continues, verse 4. They praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So simultaneously desecrating these items that are meant to be holy and provoking the God who's behind these instruments by praising gods of silver and gold and stone. Utter contempt. It may be, commentators suggests that, that in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel actually, he speaks about it, looking back retrospectively, speaks against Belshazzar and, and speaks of his downfall. And this may even be his way of getting back at Daniel and his God. Your God's going to bring me down, Daniel? This is what I think of your God. And I think it may well be a provocation in a religious sense towards the God of the Bible. And so, there's a warning for us, friends. If we take on God, oh, he can fight his own corner. Oh, we can. Listen to this, verse 5. Suddenly, God intercepts human reality. We've heard once already, God intercepting human reality in giving birth and life. Praise God. But God intercepts human reality too. To act in judgment. And look at this. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand. A, a disconnected, disembodied hand. Appears. And writes on the plaster of the wall. History has shown that, that the plaster in, in these ancient Babylonian buildings. Was white and of a soft nature. Whereby inscriptions were possible. Right on the plaster. He turned his face. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together. It almost seems comical doesn't it. And his legs gave way. Commentators suggest that, that that latter part of the verse is suggesting that perhaps he'd weed himself with absolute fear. Why? Why has this taken his attention to this degree? Why is he fearing? Anyone? Oh! Oh, thank you, Pete. Do you want to answer in the, on their behalf? 
Okay, perhaps, perhaps he's fearing because he is mocking Daniel's God. He is God, is he? Give me his goblet. Look at this. He's mocking God. And the very moment he's mocking God, the most incredible supernatural activity is, te- is happening before him. And he must surely be putting one to one together and working out. This is Daniel's God. This is Daniel's God. And so I think, friends, it's the fear. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. It's the fear of what he's doing. You know what it's like when you're doing something you're not meant to do? You're always on edge, aren't you? (laughs) And he must have been doing this. And so all of a sudden, he's been found out. He knows it. He knows it. And so you think, wouldn't you? He'd call him Daniel, but no. As we, no, verse 7, he calls the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, verse 8, who could not read the writing nor tell the king what he meant. And so again, again, now in his 80s, an old man, you think by now he'd given up, wouldn't you? Daniel is called, and all that power is thrown in the queen. This is probably his grandfather's wife. The queen, verse 10, says to him, verse uh, 11, look, your father... Nebuchadnezzar, the king, I say, appointed a chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and, and diviners. This man, Daniel, verse 12, call for him. He will tell you what the writing means. There are some very prominent, wise women in the Bible. David's wife, Abigail, one of the many, many others. Here's one with great wisdom. No doubt, remember, if she's the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, we said, finally did come round to real, genuine faith, and it seems as though she shares some of that faith. And so calls for Daniel, verse 13. Daniel is brought before the king. Now, Daniel's relationship to the king Nebuchadnezzar was always one of favor. If you notice how he speaks to him, that related well but look at the disdain he has for this king. He, he wants to offer him a reward. Like, look, when someone gives you something, look, we invited someone for dinner earlier. Hey, and what they said to me? You know, you can stick your dinner wherever. Seriously, it's the last time I invited him to lunch. Okay? Look, when someone invites you for a meal, or when someone offers you something, you know, how would you feel if they say, you know, you know, Here's a phrase we don't use very much, but to get the message across. To hell with your money. How would you feel? Yeah, you know how I feel now, don't you? Okay, so so look, the, here's the reality here. Look how Daniel speaks to this king, and, and he shows something of Daniel's awareness that this is a completely impotent king. And Daniel has no regard or fear for him. Listen to this. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. I don't care, king, for anything you've got to give me. But I will tell you what the inscription means. And so it begins to speak about his father, first of all. Look, when your grandfather's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, just like yours, okay, God deposed him of his throne, stripped him of his glory. Verse 22, but you, his grandson Belshazzar, 
have learned nothing from that. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Verse 23, instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Deliberately, Belshazzar had picked a fight with God. Knowing all that he knew, you see, he knew what his grandfather thought of Daniel's God. He'd heard the stories, the stories of the magicians failing to interpret his grandfather's dream, the story of what happened to his grandfather when God humbled him. He'd heard it firsthand. And in his stubbornness, Daniel says, he picks a fight with God. And verse 24, therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. The point is simple. We can be sure our sins will find us out. Belshazzar is about to discover the huge and frightening ramifications of that. Here it is, verse 25. The inscription that was written, many, many tackle passing. Sounds like a riddle almost, doesn't he? So many, it's in the Aramaic language, so there's no reason why, no one sh- why anyone could not have understood it. We can only assume it was cold. And so many is a term to do with weighing and weights. The point is quite simple. King, God has weighed your life and you're found wanting. Tackle, is, it's from the, uh, the, one of the coins they used to use. It's to do with, with, uh, with, with um, uh, uh, sorry, let me just start again. It's to do with the coins they used to use in that society and it's to do with, with weighing and numbering uh, what's going on. And the point being simply that Belshazzar has been found to fall short of God's standard and passing or Perez, as here, par- passing, just simply means to divide. Here's a man who's been weighed, who's fallen short, and God's injunction or judgment is to separate. Belshazzar will be separated from his kingdom. It'd be given over to another group, divided, in fact, amongst Medes and Persians. And the point simply is that because Belshazzar has refused to honor God, his sin has found him out. Verse 23, you did not honor the God who holds your life in his hand and all your ways. Belshazzar then, we're told, verse 29, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. Cyrus entered the city, ransacked the place, found the king in his bravado and stupidity, apprehended him, took over the kingdom, and brought an end to Babylonian rule. The point simply is that we can be sure that our sins will find us out. I quote in Numbers 23 earlier, and here it is again, Numbers 32, 23 rather. If you 
If you fail to do this, you'll be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. It was a warning to Reuben. It was a warning to Gad. It's a warning to Belshazzar. And so here's the point. What is he saying to us? What's Belshazzar saying to us? Let me take you further back. So this is written by Daniel. It's written to the exiles who've just left the land. So what is he saying to them? We asked this last week and we want to ask him, what is he saying to the first reader? I remember as a young pastor, I used to be younger one time. I know some of you still think I'm young, thank you very much. Uh, I remember going to my first minister's conference. I turned up there and it was Dick Lucas, uh, the, the well-renowned legend, Dick Lucas from the Anglican Church Movement. It began a movement called the Proc Trust that has spread expository preaching all around the world. And I turned up, a lovely fellow in his 80s, and the first thing he said to me, and I've never forgot it since, that when we read in the Bible, he goes, remember this, it wasn't written to you, silly. Can you see his point? Whenever we pick up the Bible, we have to remember it wasn't written to you, silly. What's his point? What's his point? I've never forgotten it. What's his point? It wasn't written to you. So he's talking to me, you see. Silly. We have to remember the Bible was written to an original audience. We are only the beneficiaries down the line after this ricocheted beyond the original readers and beyond that, which means we we do not have a license to take a text and apply it to ourselves because it wasn't written to us. Who was Daniel written to? The exiles. And so the question has to be, what did it mean to the exiles? Somebody, let me ask, what did, this, what did Daniel, chap- Daniel chapter 5 mean to the exiles? Yeah. And, and, and what would that have said to them, Jerry? What, what would that have hammered home to them? What would they have been thinking when they're reading about Belshazzar being found out? Yes. Can you see what Daniel chapter 5 is in Daniel? It's a reminder to the exiles as they've left exile. As it's a bit like when a prisoner is released out of prison. What do you want him to remember? Why he was there in the first place. And what the consequences will be if he's found out. And here's God saying through Belshazzar, don't forget why you're in exile. Because you can be sure just like the first time, your sins will find you out. And before long, be back in exile. And perhaps with worse and devastating consequence. So he says to the remnant, be sure your sins will find you out. It's a reminder to Israel that if they repeat their history, that God can and does show up. Secondly, what does Jesus do with it? Here's another significant thing I ought to explain. You hear me doing this, I just want to give you some of the rationale. What does Jesus do with it? Why do I care about that? 
Why aren't I just saying at this juncture, that's what he says, this is what you do. Why do I care what Jesus says about it? Somebody tell me, why, am I, why do I waste this time in the middle of a sermon? It takes five minutes to do and say to everybody, what does Jesus say? Why do I do that? And that is the answer, the new covenant. When Jesus came into the world, what did he do with the old covenant? He brought it to his fulfillment, Matthew 5. He brought it to his climax. And then Hebrews 8, he put it into the background, which means I have no license to jump into the Old Testament, to dive into it, to grab a text and say to myself, that sounds great, I'll have that. That's my, it's going to my mantelpiece. Jesus controls how we relate to the Old Testament and in fact the whole of the Bible. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? So let's look at Jesus. Let's look at him first of all. How does Jesus, and we've said already before in one of the, my early weeks here, uh, that, that Jesus is in all of the Old Testament. So first of all, before looking at what he says, where is Jesus here? Somebody give me Jesus in chapter five. Where is Jesus in chapter five of Daniel? Because according to John 5, 39, Jesus said it, these are the scriptures that testify about Jesus. How is chapter five testifying about Jesus? Is a tough one. The writing, without doubt. Who wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets? Someone tell me. Who wrote those? Whose finger was it? Uh, that, that's, that's too general. Give me a very specific answer. Whose finger wrote those words? God's just too general. It could be existing three persons. Who wrote those words it was a finger of Jesus Jesus is always a physical manifestation of God the visible every appearance of God in the Old Testament is Jesus it's his finger and no doubt there's the finger of God the finger of Jesus but something even more than that in contrast now Belshazzar is being weighed in the balance and found wanting in contrast what do we see about Jesus is Jesus ever during his life weighed in the balance when there's that and at the end of his life the trial remember they put him on trial they weigh him this is what happens look Matthew 26 the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin brought him stuck him on trial they weighed Jesus look at this they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death and in verse 60 what did they find on Jesus when they weighed him how heavy was he what's he say is he there no can we move forward please or backwards back uh, yeah, there we go. There it is. What did they find? Verse 60? They found nothing. In fact, do you remember Pilate when, when, he, when Pilate weighed him? Put him on trial. Search his heart. Search his life. What was Pilate's conclusion at the end of the trial? Couldn't find anything wrong with him. So here's how Jesus is in Daniel chapter 5. He is Belshazzar par excellence. You see, where Belshazzar failed when he was weighed, Jesus, when he was weighed, came up trumps, 
came up spotless. In contrast to Belshazzar, Jesus stands perfectly righteous, without fault. Paul says, I find no basis for a charge. But nevertheless, here is a man who is weighed and found, not found wanting, but nevertheless, what is his end? What was Jesus' end? Crucifixion. Here's the contrast. A man guilty of sin, weighed and condemned. Amen. Another man, the man, weighed, found, guilty, but nevertheless condemned, hung, killed. Why? Why? Yes, thank you, Jeff. Why? Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He was weighed, and because he was found guiltless, he had loaded on his shoulders the sin of the world. And as a sinner, not due to his own sin, but as a sinner carrying our sin, took the weight of that, suffered the consequence of that, so that we might go free. Jesus stands in our stead, friends. And it's almost as though God weighs him and finds him guiltless. God puts us alongside him and finds us full of guilt. And does this transaction whereby the guiltless becomes guilty and the guilty become guiltless. When he was weighed, there was no sin of his own until he carried our sin to the cross. And that's what the meal there just taught us. So here's a question. When Jesus, having paid our debt, how does he now call us to live? Having cancelled the debt, what is the call of the gospel? I hope we make this clear. I hope we, whenever we preach the gospel, we always get this element in. When he calls us out of the world and when he wipes the account clean, what does he call us to do? Thank you. He calls us to leave sin. Do you remember the woman at the well? What did Jesus do to her? What did Jesus do to her sin? The first verse. The woman at the well, I think it's the next verse, please. What did Jesus do to her sin? What did he say to this woman who was incidentally caught sleeping with somebody else's husband? What did he do to her? Or for her? He wiped the slate clean. Let me tell you this. If you've come to faith in Jesus, you come. And I don't care what you've done, where you've been, what you've said, it's gone. It's all gone. But, you know the but coming, don't you? But, 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 what did Jesus say to her afterwards? Go and sin no more. If we do not preach, go and sin no more, we're not preaching the gospel. And Jesus, friends, calls us then to go and sin no more. And he does this because here's the reality. Here's the reality. A Christian whose life carries on exactly as it did the day before their conversion is something other than a Christian. That's strong stuff. 
Someone who professes faith in Jesus and their life looks exactly the same today as it did yesterday is something less than Christian. And don't hear me say that. Who the heck am I? Listen to John. Just listen to these words. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. Do you know, that's the same John who commented on the woman of the way, caught in adultery. And he's just really reiterating Jesus' words, just re-emphasizing the point that if we claim to be Christian, but there's nothing changed, we haven't left sin behind, then our faith is dubious and won't get us across the finishing line. And the point here is, let me just say this, we're not talking about sinless perfection. Goodness sake, if that was the case, Jerry wouldn't be here, would he? And we're not talking about sinless perfection, rather a passion that changes. Before faith, our passion is sin, because it tastes good, smells nice, it's wonderful to have. After faith, something changes and Christians so here finally I want to close now what does Jesus say about being sure as sins will find us out Luke 12 verses 2 to 3 here's Jesus's take on Deuteronomy 32 there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known what do we do with that Old Testament quote that we said we can't just rip out of his context and just use for ourselves? What do we do with it? We ask ourselves, what does Jesus say? And what does Jesus say about Deuteronomy 32? He says that text carries into the new covenant and it's equally potent today that there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and we have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Jesus is saying to his church that we can be sure that our sins will find us out. That man who called that prostitute to his room could not have known that the woman that would come to his door would reveal his sin. But it did. This went global. The whole world, you can Google it, the whole world knows about this man. Let me tell you about a young man in a prayer meeting. My time is up, so I'm going very quick. Young man in a prayer meeting, Selwyn Hughes. You know Selwyn Hughes? What is the next picture? Wrote every day with Jesus. He's from my Pentecostal days where I was converted. Selwyn Hughes, we all love Selwyn. Fantastic preacher. In one of his sermons, I must have listened to it 50 times. I just listened to it over and over again. I just love it so much. He gives this one illustration where he said there was a young man in his prayer meeting who was praying like an angel. And he listened to him and he thought to himself, wow, this man is growing in God. And then after the prayer meeting, he slipped a note to a young girl in the, in the back, back pew and went away, went away. And Selwyn says, I knew I knew what was in the note. And I went straight to his house and said, young man, I know what the note says that you passed that woman. You have just invited her to spend the night with you in sex. There was great tears. 
They went round to the girl's house together. They mourned and they wept and repented. But the point I'm trying to make, friends, is that Jesus warns us that if we are flirting with sin, if we are continuing in sin, if we have disregard for the cross and what is done for us, then we can be sure that nothing that's hidden will remain hidden. We will be found out. Maybe not publicly. We may, we may not make the news. Who cares what I do? Mind you, probably the, the, the news may well be interesting in what your pastor does. But we may not make international news. But the truth is out there. That Jesus warns us, friends, that if we persist in our old patterns, we can be sure our sins will find us out. And so let me leave you with this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. May you be helped, Jerry, and you, Lorraine, and you, Catherine, and me, Montas, and every other person in this room. May we find the grace to be faithful to the gospel, to leave sin behind. And if we, if we look, if we're in sin right this moment, can I encourage you, bring it to God Say you're sorry and flee a million miles from it.